0: listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host Sutta Singh. Each week we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, Equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you.
1: My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Anirban Ghosh, Head Center of Sustainability at Mahindra University. Previously, Anirban was the Chief Sustainability Officer at the Mahindra Group. Good afternoon, Anirban. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today.
2: Good afternoon to you.
1: Let's get started. Could you please introduce yourself? Tell us three things that defined your career trajectory.
2: Currently, I am the head for Center for Sustainability, the Mahindra University. Till recently, I was the Chief Sustainability Officer of the group. Did that job since about 2014, and now we are looking at leveraging the center to make a greater impact on the sustainability ecosystem. Three things that. Influence my career, I think there's only one, just chance. <laughs> there are these lovely lines from a song by John Leonard, which says, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And sure. it just seems to happen every once in a while.
1: That resonates with me. So Anirban, you're the Chief Sustainability Officer at the Mahindra Group. What does that role entail? What would your day look like? And what is the big vision?
2: sustainability job is very interesting. You can kind of create your day for yourself. There are two or three broad things that one needs to Of course, I must also look at it from the lens of what it was a few years ago to what it is now. A few years ago, a lot of the time was to take your colleagues along on the journey, help them understand how they could leverage sustainability to do their own work better. And as a result, get all the benefits that a organization could get by practicing sustainability. That was probably the biggest thing that one had to do and figure out ways of doing it so that it seamlessly became part of the organization. To be able to do that, one had to figure out or track off what was expected of organizations in the sustainability space because in Regular business, the expectations are very simple and clear. So that's another important part of the role. A third thing that the Chief Sustainability Officer must do is continuously build competence within the organization. Because if you have to, let's say, do energy efficiency or transition to renewable energy or practice circular economy, there are new tricks that you have to. Teach your colleagues, which means that there has to be a very strong capacity building program to expose colleagues to new concepts, new learning and new technologies, which they can then adopt in the work that they do. And while doing all this, it's important to build culture within the organization so that sustainability becomes a regular part of everyone's life. Awareness increases. So we have a program called Make Sustainability Personal, uh, through which we do lots of interventions across the year and typically engage upwards of 10,000 people, 10,000 colleagues within the group in some activity or the other.
1: That sounds like an awesome initiative. It's so important today for it not to be just a siloed function, for employees also to be invested in what the organization is trying to do.
2: In this function, the extent of external engagement is very high. The primary purpose of external engagement for me was to learn, to get a sense of what needs to be done, what are the new things that are happening, who's doing it well, who can be a partner, and so on. Over time, as the work has evolved, there is an element of sharing your story and building your brand. But that's evolving now and is probably going to be a big thing going forward.
1: Yeah, so coming back to the question, in a world where stakeholder priorities are becoming as important as uh, shareholder priorities, how important is it for an organization to define its purpose?
2: Businesses have always had to have purpose. The purpose may have evolved. Milton Friedman said this a long time ago. Yeah. financial security, economic well-being, were things that the majority of the population was searching for. And business was a way of creating value. In most parts of the world, we've come along. And in the course of our journey, as economic well-being has improved or increased, we have created society in a way in which there are many who are underprivileged and many who are superprivileged. This is probably why we are talking about stakeholder well-being more than shareholder well-being. And asking about the role of an organization in ensuring stakeholder well-being. We're also asking the question, because in the pursuit of economic well-being, we have actually led to the degradation of environmental well-being, shall we say, or the degradation of natural resources. In a sense, we were maximizing the PNL and making a mess of the balance sheet. The assets that we use, I mean, clean air, water, soil, minerals, I don't think they are in any better shape today than they were 200 years ago. And there are second-order, third-order impacts of, let's say, polluted air. Things which we are only recognizing today. Because it has gone out of And again, another reason why it is important to understand societal well-being in a holistic way. We've captured all of it in the sustainable development Goals.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, for an organization to be seen as a responsible organization. I think the things that it has to do and the scale that it has to do it in has evolved a lot and hence the conversation on purpose with the implicit understanding that purpose goes beyond financial well-being and goes towards addressing the health of society and the health of the planet in a much broader way.
1: I really like how you've articulated it. From an India perspective, Anirban, what are the key drivers for the private sector to start planning for an embedding sustainability, adopting ESG reporting? Because even today, if you look at it, sustainability is like a lot of disjointed corporate social responsibility projects, right? Or community projects. But what were the key drivers for us to use it as a strategic tool for the future?
2: For our business, the key reason is business resilience. Whatever we've done, let's say our organization is 75 years old. Whatever has helped us in this journey of 75 years, we will need to do a few other things or few things differently if we want to be around for the next 75. So what are these other things really? And the conversation is very clear. You cannot do business by polluting the environment. You cannot do business by having a negative effect on the natural resources, mineral resources, and so on. Also, I mean, there will be pressures on minerals not being available in their virtual form. Things that we didn't have to deal with so far. We know that there is this big problem of carbon dioxide in the air leading to global warming and that leading to these weather events and many other dystopian situations that we are facing and that we cannot allow this to get out of it. I don't know if you've heard that number. I read it in an article, which is quite old now, but the number stayed with me that 71% of all the emissions in the world are caused by 100 corporations, which essentially means that if we have to solve the emission problem, we've got to get the corporations to do something. And most of these corporations are in the power sector because 74% of all emissions happen because of the generation of consumption of energy. So suppose we don't solve this problem. Then suddenly there will be all sorts of regulations from the government There will be mandates to do things which are not happening as of now because there is still hope that we will all take action and we will all do the right thing and cut emissions. We're miserably failing because every year emissions are increasing. So when things get out of hand, there will suddenly be all sorts of regulations and mandates. If you take action today and, and you make remarkable progress in your business, when the mandates and regulations come, you will be far better prepared than the ones who have not taken action. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will be an island of calm when the world is going crazy from a weather perspective. That is not possible. But at least you will not be buffeted by regulations and merits as much as those who would have not made the effort. So whichever way you look at it, whether it is about reducing cost, identifying new business opportunities, Being ready for future regulations and mandates, being able to cater to the new needs of consumers, which are evolving category by category today. Whichever way you look at it, sustainability is about business resilience and about making sure that the business continues to wear. And in the process, making a very positive contribution to the environment, planet, society, and so on. Yeah.
1: With this ESG reporting and sustainability reporting, there are a whole host of reporting standards and frameworks. You have GRI, you have SASB, you have WEF. The Stock Exchange in India has issued some guidance on what the reporting should be on. So how do you prioritize? When I talk to organizations, I talk about that you don't have to get flustered because there are so many reporting standards. Identify what your priorities are. How do you decide on what your priorities are and what are those priorities for the Mahindra group?
2: You know, the mother of all frameworks is a GRI framework. Yeah. It has gradually evolved. It went from guidelines to standards and so on. But it continues to be the mother of all frameworks. All other frameworks, including the new ones that are getting made, are variants of GRI in some form or the other. In the Mahindra group, there are a number of platforms we disclose sustainability information. I think at last count, uh, we were addressing upwards of 1,500 questions. And the funny thing is the same question gets asked in a slightly different way. So I can't even say that, okay, there are 300 common questions or something. But the way we looked at reporting, we've always looked at reporting like that, is it's a expression of stakeholders on what they want the organization to do. Now, Some businesses will have things which are more important, a few which are less important for their business, for their business resilience and for their impact on society and climate. And like you were saying, prioritization comes from the end goal is I will do business in a way in which my business continues to be resilient and does not have a negative, hopefully have a positive impact on environment and society. Our definition for sustainability has been to build enduring business while rejuvenating the environment and enabling stakeholders to rise. So we look at all disclosure and reporting questions as things to do to operationalize this definition. Yes, there are too many questions to answer. But today the sectoral questions are evolving As long as you have the goal in mind, you don't have to be buffeted by millions of frameworks.
1: That is true. That is a very practical and pragmatic way to look at it because you are moving from what your sustainability goals are. So I think you're a founding member of the World Bank's Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. What is the ambition of the network?
2: All of us have to reduce emissions. Not everybody is going to do it voluntarily. And beyond the point, it will take a bit of a push to get the sort of reductions that we need to get. Carbon price is a tool that can be used to shape behavior, to shape adoption of technologies towards things which are cleaner, greener, and good for the planet. So actually, it can come in multiple different forms. So every time there's a new technology, good technology, like say electric, we tell the government, oh, you must give us some benefits for this and you must cut some taxes. So that the technology, which as of now is economically not as viable as existing technology, becomes attractive to the people who buy it. It is a form of a carbon price. What are you doing? You are? reducing the barrier for adoption of a clean technology. You could have also said, okay, I will put a greater tax on fossil fuel. Serves the same purpose. So it comes in very many different forms. And the primary purpose of carbon price is to increase the adoption of clean technologies and give us, give businesses and people a chance to switch faster than we would ordinarily do. New technologies have been evolving all the time. Nobody puts incentives to accelerate the adoption of new technology. But in this case, uh, carbon price is a tool and it is being discussed because we have a time limit. Mm -hmm. We've got keep temperature rise below 1.5. We have to do it by a certain date. And if you let new technologies get adopted in the regular pace, that will not
1: Yeah, it's very critical, I think, to accelerate the pace of adoption. So anything that can go towards that adoption stage is really critical. So India has set itself a target to achieve net zero by 2070. We heard the prime minister say that again. Uh, As one of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases and the heavy dependence on coal and lack of funding, what are the big challenges to achieving this target? It's not going to get done by itself.
2: Actually, the challenges don't lie in the use of coal and things like that. Okay. The challenges lie in the availability of alternatives. Mm. Let's look at it from an energy security lens. If we reach a stage where we can use renewable energy, nuclear power, hydropower and all of this to meet our energy needs, why would we even want to use coal? That true. So if you want to shift the conversation from why are we using coal or when are we going to stop using coal to, how do we increase the availability of alternatives that can take us away from coal and fossil fuel? It will be a constructive conversation. We'll all enjoy being part of the journey. And similarly, how do we ensure that we move from fossil fuel powered devices, vehicles and other things to coal? clean energy-powered devices. So that actually is the real journey that we are on. Along the way, we'll get rid of coal, we'll get rid of fossil fuels and so on.
1: Yeah, we seem to get stuck on that conversation.
2: Today, you don't have a choice. I mean, this is how we evolved as a society. When fossil fuels got discovered, we were delighted. When thermal power happened, we were delighted. When plastics happened, it solved many of our problems. But now we are seeking alternative solutions to all of this. So we'll get rid of it only when we have an alternative solution.
1: And how big is the role of the private sector in helping us to achieve this target? Massive. And at the Mahindra Group, do you have a specific plan for Net Zero?
2: So this will happen only through business. Because one of the primary drivers is new technologies. So where are the new technologies going to come from? Somebody has to make it marketable, make commercialized. Even if the development were to happen in some government lab or research institution, it has to end up getting commercialized. Therefore, businesses play a critical role. And every single solution that we talk of, is it LED lamps or BLDC fans or Inverter, air conditioners, electric vehicles, just name it, any one of them. You will need a business that will have to commercialize the product or the service. Oh. In the group, we've committed to being net zero on scope one and scope two by 2040. We will get there. When we made the commitment, we knew we will get there and we are making good progress to get there. The challenge is scope three, which is the emissions from, say, a vehicle in use, all the embedded car that comes with the material that we buy. Because those are not things we can immediately solve ourselves. Yeah. Even if we go 100% electric, we're dependent on the grid becoming 100%. renewable. So that's where all of us will have to come together. I think the conversation on scope 3 has started. People have understood that it is really a very big problem. And we are able to get there because we've almost tackled scope 1 and scope. People are largely comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, this can be addressed. But scope 3 is another yeah. uh, animal altogether. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I think it's huge and there's a lot to be done on that front. But you know, since you're talking about, I think one of the things that you mentioned is the challenges and the current vehicles that are being used. I was in Mumbai towards the end of last week and I was there for the first time in an earlier decade and I wanted to use uh, black and yellow taxis just for nostalgia's sake. They're in such bad shape. And after some time, they definitely need to be phased out. The taxi drivers are really struggling. When I saw their struggle and I was thinking about, we are talking about transitioning. We are talking about moving forward. How are we going to have this just transition where we take everyone along and not just a few people along on this journey? And first of all, do you believe that a just transition is possible? And secondly, how do we, for example, the taxi drivers, who's going to look out for them? I'm feeling really sorry for them because they seem to be stuck with their investment, with their meager asset that they have, which is what? As good as zero at this point in time. And they don't seem to have a future.
2: It is not as bleak. There will be issues in just transition. If nothing else, say, let's assume for a while that use of thermal power keeps reducing which means we need less coal. There are people who are mining the coal. What will happen to their livelihood? It is easy to say that, okay, there will be an alternative, something else come by, but there will be some effort required to make sure that we take people along from different areas of society. Actually, the taxis you saw are after one round of culling.
1: After wonder. There was a
2: rule that said fifteen-year-old taxis have to go, so you probably never saw a old premier taxi anymore. Yeah. yeah, because they're all gone now. You've got a second round of culling that has become possible. Part of the reason why the taxis are the way they are is because of how their industry shaped up with app-based cabs and for radio-based cabs and regular cabs and how they've chosen to price each other. Each product and so on. So that is not in the ambit of our conversation, so we won't get there. But I share your angst in terms of terrible cabs that we get to sit in. Uh, a couple of days ago I sat in a clean cab. And it was clean enough for me to tell the driver to ask him, Have you just done up your taxi? It just looks remarkably clean. <laughs> <laughs> so back in the day when taxis and taxi drivers were often the hero of hindi films or at least a very important part of hindi films Absolutely. taxis actually used to be done up very nicely
1: yeah i remember those times yeah
2: <laughs> yeah even the autos i mean you could step into an auto there'd be music playing the tunnel had decorated the vehicle in some very yeah, nice way
1: they used to be the pride and joy of the owners yeah Yeah.
2: Absolutely. The transition from today's taxis to electric vehicles, uh, the moment electric vehicles are widely available, will happen very easily because of the lower operating cost.
1: Okay. And
2: there will be government pressure, there will be commercial benefits, and it will happen.
1: You spoke about adoption. How is the government going to incentivize these people to take that jump? Because I think that final leap of faith is what is a big challenge. It may not be a huge amount of money. For them, it's a huge amount of money. So it probably will depend on how the government is incentivizing these people to transition. It'll be interesting to know. True.
2: The reason why I mentioned the first kali is we now have the experience yeah. of phasing out one generation of vehicles and bringing another one. Yeah. And it has happened reasonably smooth. Okay. So we can leverage that experience yes. and do it. In Delhi, government doesn't allow for vehicles older than fifteen years unless it's certified. Absolutely, uh, in some way for another five. Which means again, if it is a good learning that we take from these, let's call them experiments, then the ability to roll it out across the country will be that much higher. Because we are a very what should I call it? We are a active, vibrant democracy. <laughs> So every local area will have its own challenges, but we'll get there.
1: Moving from there, according to a recent report, greenwashing is a big concern for 44% of investors. We're talking about sustainability, ESG reporting, but there's a lot of greenwashing that is going on. And I use this term because I learned about it where organizations uh, watermelons. So green on the outside and red on the inside. So they talk about weak things. We do sustainability reporting and we are heading towards net zero. But there's no real action to back that up. What would your reaction be? There are a lot of organizations doing
2: that. The bad news is that greenwashing has hardly even started. It's going to, for a while, yeah. go through the That's because, till now, If you did some good work, you talked about it. You didn't do anything and kept quiet, nothing would happen. But today, no self-respecting organization can say that we are not trying to take action on sustainability. So people will creatively interpret the work that they do. We've seen that in financial accounts forever. And I don't see why the same thing would happen In the sustainability space, a lot of creative interpretation, a lot of extrapolation. We have products which claim to have no sugar and then say it's good for health. But what they don't tell you is it has aspartame, which may be even worse for health than sugar. True. So these are practices that unfortunately exist in the business world. And I think it just might get worse. In the sustainability space. But there's a new thing that's starting. It's called green hushing. Okay. Because in the space of sustainability, since there are so many people asking questions, many organizations are saying, look, we're not going to go out and tell you all sorts of things. We'll quietly do our work. Now, I don't know whether green hushing is any better than green hushing. uh, But that conversation has started. Much more in the Western world than in India. I learned about it on an international platform. I think we should be worried about both.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think either is good. And I think with the kind of world that we live in, the kind of scrutiny that organizations are under, not just externally, internally also, they both are not acceptable. There is one question that I left out because I wanted to ask it at the end. For a developing country like India and for the private sector that is still like growing and has like decades to grow and to reach that maturity level that is there in some Western market. Is it possible for us to plan for green and sustainable growth or is it contradictory?
2: Not at all. Forget the fact that it is green. Take any technology. Say take LED lamps. Yeah. What enabled adoption of LED lamps? The fact that they turned out to be a better value proposition than what we had, especially the long life and the low energy consumption. So even if they're not, if you look at this green, the are the technologies for the future. That's the direction in which we will move. So if you're setting up a new business in lighting, even if you don't understand anything about the planet. And you look at the product and you look at the value proposition, and you look at what the customer needs, you'll end up investing in that technology. So as countries have developed, they have adopted technologies that were right for that time or technologies that were future technologies. We will do the same. It just happens to be that the future technologies are all going to be green. I don't think we will come up with technologies that are more polluting than the ones we have now. Because we are conscious of the fact that typically most of the technologies that we've sworn by have ended up causing unintended consequences. Actually, the problem started when the balance was completely disturbed. The balance of how much emissions and how much of it gets absorbed by trees and oceans and so on. When that balance went away and then we had all these negative fallouts as a result of that, that's when things got out of it. So for me, I mean, I just look at it as if we had to grow, if we have to develop as a nation, what are the right things to do in the future? And most of them are going to be green technologies.
1: That is interesting because, yeah, why would any business invest in or try to peddle something that people don't want? People want increasingly, they're moving towards that. Energy efficiency, they're moving towards things that will last them in the future and not, not that they have to trade off in a couple of years. So, we have the last question. What is it that you like about your current job? And what is that one thing that you don't or keeps you awake at night?
2: This is a job that drives positive change. If yeah. you do it well, only good can happen. There aren't many jobs like this. So, I think I'm blessed that I've had this opportunity to work in this space. What keeps me awake at night is the worry that however hard we try, we may not be moving fast enough. And so today, let's say, whenever you talk about renewable energy or the transition in India, you also talk about, oh, but our distribution companies, they are not well off, financial problem is that. And sometimes I wonder what we are holding the world hostage to the fact that the financial viability of our distribution companies is at risk, somehow it doesn't add up. And so it just slows down progress. We would have loved to be 100% renewable energy by now. Intent is there, capability to invest is there. The only thing that keeps us back is local regulations. We don't want to put business at risk by trying to adopt renewable energy. And fact is, some places the regulations are such they don't even allow you to go beyond the point, which slows down progress. And that's what worries me because every really? little molecule of carbon dioxide that goes up into the air is adding to the problem because it's going to be there for the next 400 years. Yeah. Which also tells me that part of the solution is to figure out a way to take carbon dioxide out of the air. Conversations are starting. But to answer your question, this work helps drive positive change for everybody. The nature of the work is such that the worry is that we're not moving fast enough to avoid the dystopian situations that we are trying to avoid.
1: Wow, yeah. That's a big responsibility to actually have. And I'll ask you one more thing, actually. So what? who motivates you and keeps you going?
2: I mean, I really don't need any additional motivation. Your job, motivation, and the nature of the work, the impact that it has in the short run, the recognition we get because of the work that we do, more than enough. And it is such a joy to see transitions happen. And uh, take a small example factories can get really hot for workers to work in. Yeah. Not all factories are air conditioned. And we've seen these huge air circulators which would be kept in factories. It would make a huge amount of noise. Some amount of air would happen in some pockets. We've transitioned to these low-speed fans, very large low-speed fans, which move very slowly. I don't know if you've experienced any one of them. They were in some of our airports for a while. But the amount of air and the area over which you can feel the breeze is very high. And it consumes a very tiny amount of electricity compared to those air circulators. So suddenly you see you're walking through the factory. It's not oppressive. It's not hot. You're not perspiring. Your yeah. colleagues working on shop floor are so much more comfortable. So yeah. when you see transitions like this, and this is just one example. Circular yeah. economy gives us yeah. clean spaces in India, which is almost unheard of. Yeah. So sure. when you see the transition happening, it's such a joy. Yeah. You don't need more no, I don't.
1: This has been an incredible conversation, Anirban. There's been so much of positivity, learning from your experiences and understanding the sustainability space and the priorities for us as a country and for the private sector. Thank you for sharing your insights. It's been wonderful.
2: Welcome, thank you for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. Wish you all the best.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.